Hi, my name is Jimmy Gertz. Welcome to another episode of Looking at the Movie Times, the podcast where we look at a new movie being released in theaters and place it in the times of film. And this week, with the release of Leica's new film, Kubo and the Two Strings, I'm going to be talking to animation art conservation director, Ron Barbagallo. Thanks for talking to me, Ron. Hey, thank you for having me. And uh, before we start, can you just maybe briefly kind of explain what the work is you do at the Animation Art Conservation? You know, it's kind of twofold. It started out literally trying to apply a museum aesthetic to repairing animation art, which is mostly painted plastic. And then mm -hmm. morphed from painted plastic to dealing with the paper backgrounds, some of the photostatic elements. And then honestly, from there to painted uh, puppets, Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, and uh, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Um, mm -hmm. And I've really become kind of the to-go-to person, commercially speaking, for the preservation of painted plastics. Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere between that journey, I'd say about eight years into it, Animation Magazine heard about me and had me write about the aesthetics of art. And so there's a large portion of my career that dealt with interviewing artists working in animation and mostly about their craft. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I mean, some of the films you talked about are some of the ones I want to talk about today. Um, and I mean, just to talk about the form uh, of stop motion itself, to me, what stands out always when I look at a stop motion animated film is there's something that's so tactile and tangible about stop motion as a form of animation. You know, obviously a lot of hard work and craft goes into any form of animation, but there's something you, you can watch sometimes clay motion, claymation and stop motion animated films and literally see the indentions of fingerprints on the uh, figures. There's just something so physically tangible about that form that I, I think is really appealing to people. Now, they really are a separate sort of category unto themselves. The people that make the puppets, the people who animate the puppets. And you'll find that almost always they're not in Los Angeles. They're, they're mm -hmm. cooped up in some warehouse in Manchester or in Oregon uh, or Northern California where Nightmare Before Christmas was done. Um, and they're not really, they're not part of the commercial scene here in Los Angeles or the politics in Los Angeles. And they're a very small devoted community of craftspeople, whether it's the puppet makers at uh, McKinnon and Saunders in England uh, or, you know, the James, pardon me, the Nightmare Before Christmas puppets were actually made in California. Um, these people are a very small, tight-knit group uh, of very committed artisans, and I think there is an intimacy about them and their craft that communicates significantly more, deeper than like artists that necessarily are working with a lot of vice presidents and overseers sort of breathing down their neck, making sure that the hand-drawn animation or the computer animation is commercially viable and can be turned into, into toys. Uh, ironically, in a lot of ways, toys are sort of the invention of 3D animation. You know, there is sort of the direct lineage to uh, young children playing with action figures to the sort of intimacy that comes with the craft of 3D animation. Yeah, and I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about uh, especially modern stop-motion animated films, too, is the directors who tend to be interested in this format, they're not doing it for commercial reasons. They tend to be kind of interesting directors like Charlie Kaufman for Anomalisa or Wes Anderson for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Supposedly his next film is also going to be stop motion animated. And partially, I think, just because it's not, a, it's not as commercially viable a form as 3D animation. So maybe that's why 
they find interest in it as a format of animation to tell their movies. That's very much the case with it too. Is it, It's never a franchise film uh, per se. A lot of these films cost maybe $40 million to make and the studios are very aware of the fact that they're a less expensive budget than doing something like Tangled or Frozen uh, mm -hmm. or any of the DreamWorks uh, products. Um, there is also less of a need to make them into a product. They can be more like Watership Down was in 2D animation, where it's kind of a, not a one-off, but an almost like auteur indie type project like Animalisa, where it's not trying to fit into the same mold that Shrek or Kung Fu Panda fits into, which is an understatement. Uh, right. <laughs> and it's actually uh, nine times out of 10, they're willing to embrace materials that uh, CGI and hand-drawn animation want nothing to do with, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's 3D printing or uh, silicone or polyisoprene. Uh, you know, there are components to the puppets from Corpse Bride that are identical in chemical composition to the materials used to make Christopher Nolan's bat suits. <laughs> um, they are willing to embrace other ways of making animation that the mainstream guys are less likely to go there. Yeah, and I think that translates into the films and their th the thematic elements as well. Um, when I was looking for a place to start this discussion, um, I think a good place would be with the work of Henry Selleck and Tim Burden, in part because both of them have worked now with Leica. Uh, Burden, uh, Corpse Bride was a Leica co-production. Uh, with Selleck, with Coraline, obviously, um, but also because I think their work, in particular, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which Selleck directed and Burden had, you know, quite a bit of creative input on, th th these might be the best-known modern stop-motion animated films and animated work. And something like Nightmare Before Christmas, to me, is... You know, it's a fascinating film because at the time, it, I think, you know, Disney was very wary of it. You know, they didn't want to be associated with it because it kind of went into darker elements and they, they were used to for some of their it's films. It's about midlife crisis. <laughs> it's, 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 it's about as far from the hero's journey. Uh, 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 you know, he's not actually even overcoming very much. Uh, it literally is about midlife crisis and maybe misplaced love. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it's also, you know, in darker in tone, and, you know, I think now it, it, that's shifted so much uh, to the point now where, you know, Walt Disney, when they re-released it in 3D, they, like, made sure to get their name out there. You know, when they did the Frank and Weenie remake, they put their name on it, and, sure. you know, stuff, stuff like Frank and Weenie is what initially got Tim Burton kind of kicked out of Disney because he was making these, you know, weird, too weird, too dark movies. Well, there's, there's another interview to be had uh, about the people that were working in an interesting vein uh, at Disney, like John Lasseter or Tim Burton, and then had to go elsewhere in order to just simply end up back where they started. <laughs> right. uh, uh, you know, then there's people like Jeffrey Katzenberg that left and created DreamWorks, but there, there is Harlan Ellison's another one. You'd be surprised who's on this list of uh, Pogo's Walt Kelly, Hank Ketchum's Dennis the Menace, uh, Carl Stalling, who did the music for the Looney Tunes. There is a a very distinguished list of people that had to leave and then come back or just leave and announce their abilities elsewhere. Uh, Hardy Gramacki, uh, who did Little Toot, is another guy that left and, and came back for Little Toot. 
Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, just because when it came out, um, I think I was maybe a little too young to appreciate it. I just kind of enjoyed it as a kid's film, as a lot of kids do, any kid's film. What, what was the impact of a movie like that? Because there were not many movies made like that. It, it was surprising. You know, I went to the first screening in, uh, I was living in the New York area at the time, uh, and the theater was not well attended. Uh, I'd say it was about 60% full. Uh, I'd say within uh, the halfway mark, I think people were expecting Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, you know, and because it doesn't really deal with Christmas, it's actually dealing with midlife crisis. And Jack isn't like a little forlorn. Honestly, after the opening number, the movie just kind of deals with his depression full on. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's surprising they didn't get Mark Ruffalo to play the, the, the part. Uh, um, right. You know, and the audience was very confused when they left. Uh, there was a strange thing that happened, and I, I love that artwork does this, that Tim Burton's drafting style really draws from many different influences, but he has the unique ability to be cute and damaged at the same time. So I think there's a quality about him where, that people can relate to when they're feeling sad and they want to feel better. But there's also sort of a, a joyous quality to his sadness. <laughs> um, you know, I think most of his films deal with that in some way where there is this happy ending. Uh, um, and I think because the drafting style is very emotive of that, uh, they, 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 his work caught on with an audience of people that it really had nothing to do with necessarily buying movie tickets. They were mm -hmm. looking to buy souvenirs based on these characters and to keep them in their lives. And that really is what, during that whole Beanie Baby craze of the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, that really is where, I think it was Juno is the company in Asia that was making all of these figures. And because of that consumer products uh, explosion for Nightmare, I think Tim and his work, and this, particularly his 3D puppet work, took on a life and a place in the subconscious that was much greater than anyone ever uh, anticipated because the film did not do well commercially. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't cost a lot to make, but it didn't do well commercially. It, you know, at Disney, it's one of the few studios that if you make $300 million domestic, you're a failure. Right. <laughs> it, it's not doing Lion King numbers, so it's a failure. Um, right. And it, yeah, you know, it is a shame because uh, I, th I think now in some ways this movie, Nightmare Before Christmas has been kind of stereotyped as like, you know, just this hot topic, goth, you know, relic. And I do think it holds up really well just as an individual film as well. Obviously, it had an aesthetic that's helped it live a life beyond just the movie itself. But I think it is a really good movie in itself, too. People had to get adjusted to the fact that it wasn't the movie they were expecting. And I think a lot of films fall into, like, like you know, another one is Where the Wild Things Are, which started out right. as puppet animation and then became, I think, I think at some point it was CGI animation, then puppet animation, then oddly enough in the end, live action with both elements. Um, right. But that's another film where the audience was expecting Lion King or something along those lines. And instead they got this, well, Spike Jones movie, um, which to me is a beautiful film about the tragedy of childhood. But... Audiences had to adjust to the fact that it wasn't really the commercial romp that the studios were expecting or the audiences were marketed for. Because with Nightmare, the, the trailers were very much suggesting that it was this dark Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that's not really what it is. Honestly, Corpse Bride is closer to being that. 
Mm -hmm. And I think once Corpse Bride came out, people were a little more prepared this that time around for what Tim Burton's style was, and they were a lot a lot more evident going into it. Especially that movie is like everything about it is so trademark Burton. But um, what I what I like about both Burton and Selleck's work in uh, stop motion animation is the idea. I always think that we underestimate the amount of darkness that children can take in their movies. Sure. I think a lot of times, you know, studios want to water that down because they're afraid that it won't be as commercially viable. And Selleck and Burden both have been unabashedly unafraid to do that. You know, something like Coraline, you know, is a wonderful movie that I, you know, I think kids do enjoy when they see it, but it's also not at all afraid to be dark. I mean, it's literally about like, you know, removing somebody's eyes and replacing them with buttons. Well, that's the genius of Henry Selleck. And he's also willing to, you know, it's only Tim is willing to put the darkness and the emotion into the characters themselves and to a lesser extent, the background. Selleck is willing to put it everywhere. <laughs> uh, in the grass, if he can, uh, in the wallpaper. Uh, he, he, he is willing to linger uh, in environmental places in ways that Tim isn't as interested in. Uh, and I think because of that, everything about his films when they work, um, I, like Coraline, for instance, I think they really do uh, collect an audience very quickly. Yeah, and I mean, uh, they're kind of fascinating movies. Um, his Frankenweenie, for instance, Tim Burton's stop motion anime, Frankenweenie. I loved that as it was almost kind of the fact that, so when Tim Burton, you know, before he made Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was his first film, he made these two shorts, one which was Frankenweenie, which was kind of this black and white live action homage to films that he must have seen as a kid on television. And then he also made one that I, I really like, I think it's on the DVD for Nightmare Before Christmas, called Vincent. It's a stop motion short uh, about a little kid who loves Vincent Price. And I, I saw Frank and Weenie almost kind of as a nostalgic look back to those eras. It was him working with Disney again. It was him going back to Frank and Weenie. Then it was him implementing the stop motion of Vincent as well as the movies he had done afterwards to it. So I, I think that's, you know, a, a great little film, too, and a little piece of nostalgia for Burden. You know, Tim is an interesting uh, employee of the Walt Disney Company, and I mean that back in the days when he was an employee, uh, because the studio, when Walt was running it, did a thing where they would bring in people like Oscar Fissinger or Kai Nielsen or Salvatore Dali or Leopold Stokowski, and he would try to get the staff artists that were more and uh, or less company men. These were not people that thought outside of the box. If anything, they, the years of being told what to do and being punished if they went outside of the box uh, prevented them from having the kind of inspiration that would have produced something like Frank and Weenie. So Tim has kind of an unusual position in the history of Disney artists because even as an employee, I think they didn't quite know what to do with him. I've seen character sketches that he's done for the Black Cauldron which are completely in the vein of Tim Burton and utterly impossible for any traditional 2D animator to create a turnaround for because there's no way to revolve the character. Um, and the characters are so elaborate that even trying to uh, animate some of the appendages that Tim is spiraling off the main figure, it, it, it would be hard to do. Um, so it's interesting to me that they kept him as an employee, that they let him make these eclectic shorts and these shorts were incredibly eclectic for the time period when the studio was doing this stuff you know it's, mm -hmm. it's honestly before uh, mouse detective um, and mouse detective really is the 
you know, Mouse Detective is the bridge between the, the past of the Disney studio, maybe the Ron Miller years, and certainly the Eisner, Katzenberg, Frank Wells years. Um, it even has Eric Larson, who's one of the nine old men, as a uh, bridge between the past and the present. And it's the film where it's the film where they're getting ready to make Little Mermaid and make us. And then Little Mermaid is the explosion that brings everything into the modern era because it allows for things like Eating the Beast and A Lion King to be made. Uh, um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting that Tim was working in short form at the studio as an employee, creating much more personal films. I mean, significantly more personal films than anyone at the studio would have been. I mean, in Lasseter's attempt at uh, Where the Wild Things Are, uh, it's more conventional, despite the CGI elements. In a lot of ways, a lot of the Pixar films, the first seven films, are more conventional because they're almost an homage to uh, Joe Grant and many of the other storytellers from the 40s at Disney. You know, what's... What, what Tim was doing was not an Tim was doing an homage to things that he enjoyed uh, as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the, the people I think that was an influence on him, and then also is uh, is, is Roald Dahl, which you know Henry Selleck then did his James and the Giant Peach thing. It's kind of interesting too, as you were saying that Nightmare Before Christmas, since it wasn't a big commercial success, I am kind of curious what led them to a couple years later to greenlighting James and the Giant Peach. Um, huh, that is something, right? Because that's before the June planning company and their merchandising uh, of all the figures. Um, and I don't know the full story. I can mm -hmm. tell you that those puppets are, you know, I do want to use the word unique. There's materials used for uh, James and the Giant Peach that really aren't like the materials from Nightmare Before Christmas. And they're really not the materials for Corpse Bride. It's it's a different. The hard plastics for that uh, film are, and also the very very soft plastics for that film, are in a position of their own in the mm -hmm. world of Burton and within the world of puppet animation uh, to to a larger extent. So I don't know what got that film greenlit. I'm wondering if it was a way of trying to retain Henry Selleck. Yeah, maybe so. But I mean, I'm, I'm certainly glad that we got it because I do think it is a uh, unique little film. Maybe it didn't ultimately end up having the cultural impact of something that like Nightmare Before Christmas did. But um, I thought I thought it was a pretty successful translation of Roald Dahl's sensibilities to screen, which, you know, a lot of people have tried over the years. And I think few have succeeded at. Um, in fact, you know, one of the other uh, best attempts at it is Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is another stop-motion animated film. Um, I'm kind of curious why multiple people saw that as a good format for it, but uh, that's another stop-motion film that I think is one of the best of the modern era. And um, I'm interested to hear a little bit on your take on terms of the Wes Anderson's visual sensibility being translated into stop motion figures. Uh -huh. And this is a and this is a film too that, if I'm not mistaken, Henry Selleck had some creative input in when it came to making the figures. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I actually had a meeting with Allison Abadi about my work on Corpse Bride, um, and she was actually amping up for the Fantastic Mr. Fox um, and trying to even at that point decide where they were doing it. Um, the thing that I like about Wes Anderson, and I think the thing that allows him to bridge the world from live action to uh, animation, is that he is in many ways an awful lot like Stanley Kubrick. 
and I, you're probably, I know you're probably saying, well, what does Stanley Kubrick have to do with animation? Stanley Kubrick was a photographer before he became a filmmaker. So he made that transition from understanding how to do narrative for uh, really kind of documentary photography um, and bring that narrative to motion picture. Wes Anderson is a visualist a lot like uh, Stanley Kubrick. There's a lot of symmetrical elements. Design is a very big part of how he tells his stories. He's actually not even afraid to stop the narrative and just go right into design. Um, right. You know, and he has, like Kubrick, an aesthetic that repeats itself from one film to another to another. So his leap into animation seems a little bit odd because people associate animation with children's products, like it's Barney the Dinosaur. Um, mm -hmm. But it really has nothing to do with that. And he is also very much a guy like William Shakespeare, where there is a troupe of people that Wes Anderson likes to work with. Right. Um, and I think that actually helps when he brings it into animation to create kind of a tighter-knit family. Um, because most of the things with these puppet films do feel almost like it's a family that created it. And I don't know that you have that sense with commercial animation that's uh, CGI. Like the DreamWorks films, to me, never feel like they're generated for family. They feel like they're generated for a commercial audience. And some of them are quite beautiful, but it isn't the same mechanism. And I don't think mm -hmm. they have the same place in people's affections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting with Wes Anderson's, uh, one of the things that you hear about him, sometimes it's praise, sometimes it's an insult, is saying that his films their art direction sometimes feels like an immaculate dollhouse or something like that. Uh, I'm talking even about the live-action films like Life Aquatic or Royal Tenenbaums. And so maybe in some ways it made sense that he would gravitate towards stop motion, which in some ways uh, it's, it's almost like making a dollhouse. You're taking figurines and placing them in sets that you've also built. And the, the way that you kind of make those films is, is not unlike, I guess, what would have in kind of Wes Anderson's visual style, even when he was working in live action. Look what he does to Tilda Swenson. <laughs> he did that to people also, where he'll transform them almost into a puppet or a, a, a character that is so far from them, what they look like when they walk down the street that it's sometimes hard to recognize them. You know, mm -hmm. I love the birthmark, uh, and I forgot the name of the film, uh, the film with the hotel. Grand Budapest Hotel. Right. And there's the woman that has the birthmark. She's the one that makes the cakes. Um, and I don't know how many filmmakers would have thought to damage a, a pretty face uh, right. like that for a main character. Uh, there, there is very sort of interesting... Uh, young boys are in his films all the time. And the father-son dynamic are often in his film. Uh, and honestly, his live-action films have a quality where the male figures, particularly the younger ones, feel misplaced. In an animation that's almost always part of the storytelling device is the sort of Luke Skywalker character or the Mowgli character in Disney's The Jungle Book who feels misplaced. Um, mm -hmm. Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, and I think that um, just something about the wittiness and kind of the quick pace of the the movie really works both for Wes Anderson and for what he's adapting, which is Roald Dahl. You know, in fact, one thing that I want to talk about maybe a little bit is just how stop motion helps in terms of translating uh, the humor in, in some degrees. And I wanted to also talk about studios, so maybe we could seg into 
Aardman Studios, um, and especially, you know, I don't talk about short films much here on this podcast, but to me, I think maybe the best distillation of what Aardman's done is uh, that Wallace and Gromit short, The Wrong Trousers. Sure. And, and something that's fascinating to me about The Wrong Trousers, just re-watching it the other day, is how much of not just the visual sensibility, but the humor itself is timed into the stop motion. It's almost like classic cartoon timing. So the jokes, as good as they are, I don't know if they would have worked in live action. And, you know, especially the wrong trousers, that's a very, to me, it's a very loving Hitchcock tribute. And I think it works really well, in part because they just nail the visual sensibility of it, but then also bring it to a cartoon. So it feels kind of slightly displaced. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? You know, one of the things about Nick, and I've had the opportunity to to speak with him at length, uh, well, actually, two of the things I like about Nick Park is it took me about a half an hour on the phone with him to realize he'd only open up to you once uh, he realized that you, you and he played with the same toys as a child. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it was very different than Chuck Jones or Ralph Eggleston at Pixar, uh, Joe Barbera. It, it was almost like you had to be friends with him for him to let you know uh, where it was he was drawing from. And honestly, with him, there's a sense of vaudeville and there's a sense of silent film adoration that he puts into what you're talking about. Um, and he is very much in his own little... Wallace and Gromit world. Um, and I think the benefit of being in England, uh, isolated from here, um, and when I say here, I mean Los Angeles. Sure. Uh, I, I think he's, and he's been so very successful, I think there is sort of, it's, it's good to be king. <laughs> you know, so he has been able to develop, like, like Miyazaki in Japan, uh, his own visual language based on things that he adores, you know, in some ways sort of like Tim, but kind of more aggressive than Tim, uh, because the things that uh, he adores, like when those uh, train tracks, those toy train tracks go down in the wrong trousers, I mean, you just know he's having the best time of his life, (laughs) and no one's preventing it from happening. (laughs) There's no corporate memo to say, don't do that, or we need need to sell actually our train set from such and such a place, (laughs) you know, what about the theme park ride, you know? (laughs) There's none of those uh, restrictions around him, so he can make much more handcrafted uh, stories. And I've got yeah. wonderful Nick Park stories from the time that Hollywood was trying to seduce him, uh, and it didn't work. <laughs> if you want to hear them, I'll be happy to tell you a few. Um, what I was going to say is I was so surprised in his, and even the stuff that is slightly more mainstream that they've done, for instance, you know, Chicken Run or the full-length Wallace and Gromit, where they are going to be a little bit of a de- different beast just in terms of the fact that they have to be three times as long and they have to be uh, main, they have to be a little bit wider release. I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed at how much of his, his sensibility and Armin's sensibility that they were able to retain for those films. And maybe that has something to do with uh, Hollywood's attempt to seduce him. It really does. There were three attempts by the Walt Disney Company to to fly him out to Los Angeles and to lavish him with flattery, uh, singularly in the hope that in order to make Chicken Run, he would surrender all the consumer products rights to Wallace and Gromit. And having had three Academy Awards under his belt at the last meeting, and I love, because if you know Nick, this is so very Nick, I'm told that he stood up 
after they reiterated, you know, their desire to take advantage of him. And he just pushed the chair forward into the, you know, conference table that he was standing in front of. And he simply said in a very calm British voice, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> meeting. And then I don't know the amount of time between that, but within a short amount of time, he was at DreamWorks and signed the deal with Chicken Run. And during the production of Chicken Run, I was at DreamWorks having lunch with somebody who showed me a fax. And it read, and I paraphrase, you know, something to the effect of, Dear Jeffrey, regarding your memo that I got for Chicken Run, I need to let you know that there will never be a musical score for the characters in this film. As a matter of fact, there won't even really be much of a love song. Also, in addition, my film is, and I forget uh, how long it is, but it's shorter for most animation, kind of like Dumbo, where it's 65 minutes. So he reiterated something to the effect. And by the way, my film is really about 70 minutes long. It's never going to be two hours. <laughs> you know? uh, so I think being in England, even getting the better deal from DreamWorks, Jeffrey was given a certain amount of space. Mm-hmm. You know, not the Warner Brothers amount of space, where Warner Brothers is much more of a studio, and Christopher Nolan is a wonderful example of this, where if you make Batman Begins for us, we'll let you make Inception. Right. So they'll, there'll be one film where they'll interfere or use him, and then there'll be another film where they leave him alone. Uh, DreamWorks is much more uh, controlling, not as controlling as Disney. Um, and I think Nick was smart to try to do Chicken Run here, but I think running back to England <laughs> uh, was self-preservation in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you know, I mean, especially the last, uh, obviously, you know, once it got kind of towards like flushed away, uh, you know, there was a little bit of disillusionment there. Um, and you know, apparently uh, the last film he made, Shaun the Sheep, uh, which is going back to, you know, the classic character from A Close Shave, apparently that's, that's very good as well, and I can believe it, because they're able to make in some ways, slightly more commercial films that still retain a lot of their artistry to them. You know, my impression with him is that he must have been under a contract where there was an obligation to make a certain number of films after Chicken Run, okay. and that some of them felt a little uh, like he volunteered his services but not his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is one in particular that I'm thinking of that I believe has Bruce Willis as one of the voices, and I can't recall, and it was a CGI-ish one. Uh, yeah. You know, off the top of my head which one it was, but I, I kind of felt that his heart wasn't really in it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think his heart returned for the Wallace and Gromit movie, The, we- mm-hmm. the Were-Rabbit. Um, but I think he does enjoy his distance from here. Uh, Los Angeles is uh, very unique. It's almost like Washington, D.C., in that it's a city very much defined by the one industry that is here, which is the entertainment industry. And it's a little like the Vatican, where the Walls around each one of these studios are very much these sort of like cerebral religious-like entities, you know, where the people behind the walls are devout in the politics of that religion. And they're not really aware necessarily that the rest of the world exists. So I think for Nick running back to England, it was self-preservation. Well, now, before we get too far and I forget, I'd I'd like to talk about a movie that's very far from uh, your traditional Hollywood one, which is Anomalisa, uh, Charlie Kaufman's film, um, which is about as far away from kind of like a, you know, a tested studio movie as you can get. Um, and this this is an interesting movie to me. We talked a little bit about on the last episode, uh, art-rated and animated films. Um, this is the first film that was ever uh, nominated for Best Animated Film that was R-rated. Uh, to me, it, it was interesting because in some ways I think the stop motion came almost out of necessity. You know, originally this movie 
what uh, Anomalisa was a radio play uh, that was done on stage with just the main characters. And then uh, Dino Stipitolopoulos, the guy who does Moral Oral for Adult Swim, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that show or not. I know, I know Adult Swim, I don't know the episode. I had no idea there was a table read for Anomalisa. I thought it was possibly originally for, uh, you know, I mean, he's such an eclectic and such a sort of unique voice that I had assumed this was something Kaufman nurtured like his other projects. I didn't realize there was sort of an external. Well, right, so it's, it started off as just a radio play, which when you consider the plot of the movie, which is so reliant on voice, that, that sort of makes sense. And so Dino saw the play, loved it, and convinced him, you know, let's, let's make this into a movie. You can, you know, use my stop motion uh, studio that I use for this show, Moral Oral. And I don't know if, so I don't know if that was necessarily always from the very beginning Kaufman's intention to use stop motion, but I think it ended up working terrifically for the movie. Because the thing about the movie, and this is what I said in the last episode, is that it's kind of a combination of the incredibly mundane. On the one hand, you have the fact that this movie, the, the entire plot is basically two people have a one-night stand in an incredibly drab-looking hotel during a business seminar, right? You, you can't get more mundane than that. But then you have the fantastical element that everyone around them, besides these two characters, has the voice of Tom Noonan. Um, and I think that the combination of the mundane and fantastical, which gives it kind of a slightly unreal quality, something about doing stop motion and then stop motion figures that really looked like normal humans that had love handles that were imperfect figures. I think, I think that animation worked really well with the thematic elements of the movie itself. What did you think? You know, in a lot of ways for me, it was sort of lost in translation with puppets. You know, it, it lacked the Bill Murray charm and maybe the evocative Scarlett Johansson, you know, visual. Uh, but there is a sort of like, like, like depressed look outside of a, a car window, uh, you know, and a forlorn quality to the entire thing. And a lot of that is because the voiceover is, like you said, rather mundane. And it's the same voiceover throughout the entire piece. Um, the other thing about it that I really enjoyed were the subtle an anomalies that take place within the 3D printing because it added a flickering element from frame to frame to frame that was very reminiscent of early rotoscope. Um, and even, uh, early, like Willis O'Brien, uh, puppet animation for King Kong as it, or, or the early How Harryhausen animation where... It threw off the thing from being perfect. It made it damaged, much like the people in the piece. Uh, there were all those peculiar uh, lines that were generated from the mouthpieces that were put in so that the puppets could talk. Um, and I like the fact that they left it there. They didn't go in and CGI and take those things out. It added what I thought was a very necessary, unique quality to this. You know, with films like A Scanner Darkly, they're referencing CGI filters and programs that are sort of in the back of everybody's minds culturally so that when you see that, it, it isn't so surprising necessarily. It's like, oh, they, how did it take them this long to make a film that looked like that? Well, with, with this film and its 3D printing, I hadn't actually seen anyone do anything like this before, and I'm glad it came out of someone from that group of Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman because I think those guys aren't afraid of dealing with the dark underbelly that maybe superficial America refuses to address. You know, we're mm -hmm. good at selfies, we're good at big butts, we're good at like, you know, 
uh, shaven buffed forms. Uh, but we're not actually very good at dealing with what's really causing everyone's need to sort of pretend those things make them feel good, which are all these very shallow things that Americans uh, kind of embrace. Uh, I think Kaufman and Jones are very, very good at uh, addressing those more uh, tactile points. And I think they brought it right into the animation. You know, the R-rated scene of the uh, couple in bed, um, I think because I've not seen that in animation outside of a Ralph Batchy film, uh, at first I was uncomfortable with it, uh, and then I decided, well, why? You know, leave it to these guys to actually sort of address the fact that that's what human beings do, you know? even And they had it in such a way where it was awkward, much like a one-night stand might be. Right, well, you know, the, the movie I thought of when I saw that scene was, I guess the other classic puppet sex scene is Team America World Police, where... In that movie, it was played as this outrageous, you know, over-the-top punchline. So I liked in this movie, they said, okay, we're going to bring, you know, a puppet sex scene to it, too, but we're going to make it uh, uncomfortable and intimate and realistic, you know, how a normal person would have sex. Right. And I actually really appreciated that, that it wasn't this Hollywood sex scene. It was actually way more like what some sort of awful uh, one-night stand, not awful, but awkward, <laughs> disconnected, you know, I mean, there's a funny thing that goes on uh, culturally where you would think this level of intimacy suggests nirvana. And often it's anything but nirvana. It's desperation. It's awkwardness. It's retaliating for a relationship that happened a month ago that didn't end up the way you wanted it. Uh, you know, and I don't know how that scene managed to encapsulate, like, her awkwardness, his neediness. Uh, but it did. In a way that I actually haven't really seen in a film that's live action. Normally, it's Matt McConaughey and Sandra Bullock, or you know, uh, even Kate Winslet. You know, where it's it's some perfect person having perfect sex, and I don't know that anyone really does that on a first encounter. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, and before we get into Leica and Cuba and the Two Strings, um, I just wanted to talk about a couple of uh, kind of. Uh, you know, odd anomalies in terms of stop motion, and if you have any other kind of odd recommendations, you can make them. Um, one I would I would people su uh, would suggest people seek out is, and this is a little bit different from the films we've been talking, and that it mixes live action and stop motion. But uh, the work of Van Spankmeyer, uh, he's a Czech filmmaker. Specifically, he did a film in 1988, a version of Alice in Wonderland called Alice, that I think did a really terrific job of getting to the underlying darkness of Alice in Wonderland. Um, ironically, Tim Burton's version of Alice in Wonderland was a little bit kind of brighter and cheerier than I might have imagined he would take it. But so I, that's a really good film I recommend people seek out. Um, there's also a uh, French-Belgian film called The Town Called Panic. And it's this is a, a little bit lighter. It's just kind of a goofy comedy. It's almost like a punch-drunk version of Toy Story made by French-Belgians. Um, but it's really funny, and I'd recommend people check it out, too. Um, are there any other stop-motion animated films you like that uh, you think we're forgetting, Ron? Well, you know, no, uh, because I think there's, there's a, a very Miyazaki quality to Kubo. Um, and I almost encourage people, despite the fact that this male, the, the main character here is male, is to really sort of dive into the Miyazaki canon, if you haven't uh, been aware of it before, just to sort of see the otherworldliness that sort of happens within anime. 
because even though this is an American film, it's actually referencing an aesthetic from overseas a little bit more devoutly than it would be the Disney aesthetic, obviously. Um, you know, mm -hmm. with, with, the, with puppet animation, there's certainly the auteurs like the Brothers Quay that don't really deal with narrative uh, like this film is dealing with it. And their visuals probably are more aligned with Tim Burton's and maybe even Selleck's at times uh, than they would be with what's going on here or in Coraline with Laika. Um, you know, Laika, I honestly think Laika is sort of the predominant studio right now for puppet animation because it manages to bring it to a place that is commercial, despite the fact that they are, you know, compared to DreamWorks or Disney, a very small handcrafted studio. They're not Pixar, for God's sake. Well, and what we were saying earlier about the idea of including darkness into children's movies, something that I think that's interesting about Laika is they've made a couple of different films at this point that all, I think, have very distinct and different uh, visual and thematic elements to them, but they're all kind of going towards that, right? So Coraline was kind of this, uh, the more traditional Henry Selleck and Tim Burton quality, also a little bit of Neil Gaiman uh, into it, obviously. Then you had Paranorman, which was kind of playing on the idea of zombie movies and like 70s and 80s B-movies you might sure. watch on television. The Box Trolls was kind of just going for grotesquerie in general, you know, whereas some of the figures in these movies, including uh, Kubo, are very pretty, uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, creations. The ones in Box Trolls, I think, were going for a deliberate kind of grotesquerie to them. And then you have Kubo and the Two Strings, which you said I think is a lot more influenced by Asian cinema and Miyazaki in particular. But so they all have very different visual styles to them, but they all have kind of the same goal, which is to make these kind of slightly dark children's fables almost. You know, my worry with Kubo and uh, Box Trolls, and maybe worry is the wrong word, but uh, I feel after uh, Coraline and Paranormal, Paranorman, uh, that Leica is trying to strike a balance between auteur and commercial that they've picked two, you know, in some ways, uh, Box Trolls is a little bit sort of DreamWorks-y, uh, and this thing is a little bit more trying to go for a, a global market and, and to work within a Eastern, uh, pardon me, uh, an Asian uh, uh, storytelling, because they know that it could probably do very well overseas and still take the American market and the European market with it. Uh, um, so and I applaud Leica for trying to to uh, ride that thin line between commercial and and groundbreaking, because they haven't really planted themselves where DreamWorks or Pixar did. Uh, but they're certainly not the entity that made Dinosaur at Disney. <laughs> Disney was trying to compete with Pixar and did an awful awful job of it. Um, you know, so they're way ahead of that uh, aesthetically. But I think they are trying to get on board with a wider commercial, and I hate to use that word because I, I mean they are clearly not the Kim Kardashian of animation. Um, mm -hmm. But there is an element in their last two films where I think they're looking for a more mainstream audience so that they can break uh, into a more lucrative market. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Uh, one thing that I heard a lot, you know, while I was reading the reviews of Kubo and the Two Strings, both positive and negative. 
was that this was a very arty film for animation. And I mean, certainly there's a lot of artistry to it. And, uh, but at the same time, I do think it is a, a more traditional movie maybe than people let on. It's very much kind of a hero's journey film where they're going from different set pieces. And certainly when you compare it to something like Ice Age Collision Course, yes, it, it is a lot artier. It is almost an art house film compared to that. But uh, I, I do think that there is a, enough of a conventional element that some people who are like, oh, kids would never be into this. It's only for animators. I think, I think that they're uh, a little misguided in, in those thoughts. I think there is enough here that it can uh, appeal to both people, I feel like. You know, one of the things I'm curious about it is like within the world of the Star Wars films, the last film really wasn't uh, the sort of hero's journey that uh, A New Hope was. You know, there there's a more of an innocence to uh, George's first attempt at Star Wars. And I'm wondering within this film, where does it ride that track between trying to make the hero's mission poignant and being commercial? Because I haven't seen it yet, so I don't really know where it falls. Well, as someone who has seen it, I will say one thing that's interesting about this film is that... Um, it, it deals with death and uh, specifically the death of parents, but in kind of an interesting way. Now, the death of parents isn't anything unusual for animation. You know, that's, sort of, that's going all the way back to Bambi, that, you know, parents' uh, death can set off the plot of an animated film. But I haven't really seen an animated film, at least a Western one, like this one, where the acceptance of death and the idea of that played such a prominent part in the movie. Now, there are some twists and turns I don't want to spoil too much for people who haven't seen it, but just that idea I thought was interesting. And obviously that comes from, I think, you know, somewhat of the Eastern influence, just the entirely different idea of an afterlife. But there is something kind of, to what the film ultimately concludes on, a little bit lyrical about it. And certainly I think as you were saying, uh, I think it's not just the visuals that are influenced by Miyazaki and those, those sort of peoples. That's, that's an idea you can kind of see in those films and his contemporaries as well. So I do think that they are able to find an interesting way to kind of frame the hero's journey, but it is very much a hero's journey film. You know, one of my favorite things about the Pixar uh, director, Pete Docter, is his willingness to kill people. <laughs> uh, and particularly... <laughs> somebody's parents, uh, you know, in the beginning of, of Nemo, or uh, I remember having dinner with him and Ralph Eggleston, and I was asking them what they were working on, and he says, well, we're working on this film about a couple that have known each other their entire life, and within the first, like, ten minutes of the film, we go on this journey where she has an abortion and dies, uh, no, pardon me, a miscarriage, and dies, uh, and then uh, I think it was Eggleston that did this, he paused, and he says, um, and by the way, it's hilarious. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, God, this sounds like the most awful idea for a film. What could, what could Up, how can Up even possibly be upbeat? Like, what is it? And when I got invited to a screening of it, I was actually surprised that he was entirely right about her death and her miscarriage and that that sequence is actually wonderful. And yes, the rest of the film is hilarious. Uh, sometimes I think when you throw a character off in the beginning of a film so completely, I think most people in their life have a backstory that's similar. You know, mm -hmm. It's not that happened to them, that happened to their grandmother, or that happened to their spouse. And 
I think by doing stuff like that in children's animation, you do make this stuff instantly more tangible. And I also think that animation has a way, because it's something that you start to watch when you're young, of creeping under your skin. I think it does it in ways that live action films for adults like, and no offense to Lawrence of Arabia or Sophie's Choice, because I think these are wonderful movies, The Godfather. But they, there's something else. There's something that animation does where it hits you, you know, like your mother's breast, that it's that essential. So when something goes off in it, um, it can damage the audience immediately. Uh, and it can also make the audience elated. Like when Bambi's father comes back after his mother is shot and decides to actually parent his child that he's abandoned. Um, you don't really have that in like normal feature films. Well, I, I certainly agree about the importance of animation uh, as an art form. And so, I, you know, Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, I, I certainly, I, I think it's a good movie and I would certainly recommend it just because I, I love this form of stop motion and I, I, I do want to see it uh, persist, continue in the world and, you know, hopefully will. Like I said, you know, supposedly Wes Anderson's new film is about stop motion, so I'm excited for that. But it's just, to me, such a beautiful form of animation that I do hope it gets to continue on and people do go seek out these films still. You know, it's interesting that it's being released now, like pre-Labor Day. Um, you know, the studio, uh, I would have thought they would position this like for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Christmas. So it's interesting that it's coming out at this time. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. Thank you for talking to me, Ron. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being interviewed.